WTTM 111. Waves of magic. Oceans of fun. No Disney vacation is complete without a stay at the beach. And only Disney's Vero Beach Resort combines the beauty of the Atlantic Ocean with all of the inspiration of Disney's legendary imagination. Just two hours from the Walt Disney World Resort, you'll find a perfect setting for a wondrous seaside adventure at Disney's Vero Beach Resort. Call today for a memorable vacation combination at a place where the magical touch of Disney is as plentiful as the warm Florida sun. You're listening to the windowtothemagic.com podcast. Brought to you by windowtothemagic.com. Surround yourself with the magic. Hello, and welcome to the windowtothemagic.com podcast. My name is Paul, and as always, I will be your guide through the wonderful world of Disney sound experiences. This show is a weekly trip into the world of the Disney theme parks and resorts, and this is the place where you get to use your ears to surround yourself with the magic. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode number 111 of the windowtothemagic.com podcast. As we begin, I would like to say thanks to Jenna from Galaxy Cruises and Tours for continuing to sponsor the windowtothemagic.com podcast. The next time you plan a vacation, please call Jenna at 1-800-357-9393 and let her save you time, money, and be sure to tell her that Window to the Magic sent you. This week, Buzz Price. However, before we get into that, I want to mention a few things. First off, Patrick, Terry, and I, and maybe even Calvin, will be visiting the Walt Disney World Resort this December for Mouse Fest. We'll be holding a couple of events where you can join us for a unique Walt Disney World experience, and we will get a chance to shake your hand and thank you for listening to the show. We will have more information when it is officially locked in, so stay tuned and stay informed. It seems that MouseFest isn't the only event that's going on this fall at Walt Disney World that is getting people excited. Epcot's 25th anniversary is in 2007, and there are several fan-based events going on in October to celebrate. One of them is called the Epcot Thing. And since there is so much involved in this event, we've started a thread on WTTMforums.com with all of the info in it for you. Please visit WTTMforums.com for all the information on this very special event. MouseFest, a gathering of Disney fans from around the world. Celebrating magic. Celebrating wishes. All About the Mouse wants you to help us celebrate the spirit of the Disney parks. As we proudly present... The All About the Mouse Rockin' Mouse Meet. Join Brian Ripper as we all watch Jonathan Dichter take his first ride on the Rockin' Roller Coaster at MGM Studios. Friday, December 7th at 6 p.m. Only at mousefest.org. A few people have questioned just how Schmoozefest went. Well, I'll tell you, it was wonderful. We had a turnout of 29 people who came out for this little Northern California mini-meet and we all had a great time and enjoyed some great food. I would like to thank Jenna from Galaxy Cruises and Tours for sponsoring dessert for everyone at the event. I would like to thank the Extinct Attractions Club and Above the Firehouse Podcasts and ex-Imagineer Willie Edo for providing prizes for our raffles. I would like to thank Magic Joe from the WTTM Forums for organizing the event and his wonderful wife, Terry, for putting it all together. The Cattleman's Restaurant was a great host, 
The service was wonderful, with special thanks to Susie and the little bean girl. And we will definitely be returning to Cattleman's for Schmoozefest 08. I recorded the entire event, that would be over seven hours of audio, and I will be sharing some of the highlights with you on a future show. Speaking of events in 2008, please visit the forums for information on Window to the Magic U.S. Tour 2008. The Window to the Magic team will be visiting a different state each month throughout 2008, and we want to meet you. We here at Window to the Magic believe that the listeners are the most important piece of the podcast puzzle. And so we're going out to meet you and thank you for listening and supporting the windowtothemagic.com podcast. Visit wttmforums.com or keep listening for more information on where we're going to be visiting next. Now on to this week's main event. Have you ever heard the tale of how Walt Disney hired someone to determine exactly what the best location for Disneyland would be? Well, Buzz Price is that person. He worked directly with Walt and is the one most directly responsible for Disneyland's final location. Do you remember that Window to the Magic will be inviting all of you to join us in July 2008 for the NFFC National Convention and other special events planned only for Window to the Magic listeners at Disneyland? Well, this audio is yet another peek into the kind of fun we will be having. This audio was recorded at the NFFC National Convention in 2005, the year of Disneyland's 50th birthday. Buzz Price was invited to speak to convention attendees and to give a little background on himself, the events that led to Disneyland becoming what it is today, among other things. Buzz is a great guy, and so I bring you yet another example of the magic that you will experience in person if you choose to join us for Window to the Magic at NFFC in July 2008. Enjoy. All right, you ready for our next guest speaker today? He almost needs no introduction, but I'll go ahead and read this short bio here because I found it fascinating. Fresh out of business school, Harrison Buzz Price was asked by Walt Disney from and some analytical numbers work that might help in planning and locating a new kind of amusement park that he had in mind. Beginning with Disneyland, Buzz began a 50-year career of consulting on attractions of all kinds. Along the way, he and his associates in the companies he formed evolved a new planning technology and vocabulary. In 1994, he was the first recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from TEA. In 1995, he was elected to the Hall of Fame of IAPA, which is the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. And in 2004, he was the first non-Disney employee to be given the Disney Legend Award. And recently, CalArts gave him his PhD. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Buzz Price. Thank you, Jay. I'm not used to that handle, but I'll, I'll try to get accustomed. Uh, I like to think that I'm a, a bona fide old-timer. It's absolutely a delight to be invited here in the time of Disneyland's great birthday. I love the chronology of anniversaries. I got no choice but to love it. <laughs> I am married 61 years this year. <laughs> Mickey Mouse is 76 years old. Walt is 105 years old. And the litany goes on. That's what happens when you spend so much time watching the clock for a long time. I am here, I guess, as something of an historian, like our prior speaker, Dave, uh, 
and 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 yet uh, I can't help but point out the thread of that runs through my work and his work uh, that I saw today. And namely, I've always said that the most important management process in the in the, in the business of running an attraction was the management of reinvestment. And if we ever saw a record that sets the stage for reinvestment, we saw it today. Uh, I had forgotten what the park was like when it opened, but I, I learned today. Uh, but you know, after 50 years of reinvestment, you don't recognize anything. I'd like to talk a little bit about how this industry evolved over the last 50 years, five decades, since Walt and Roy launched their new theme park in Anaheim, and how one puts these projects together. I have written a book about it from the viewpoint of a numbers man, which I am. The book describes their pervasive influence, the influence of Walt's new park and the transformations it brought about in the industry as the theme park became part of the lifestyle of the American family. My book started out two years ago with the title Roller Coaster Math, but I gave up on that as sounding something like a physics textbook. <laughs> then it was Confessions of a Numbers Man, but I thought maybe that promised something I couldn't deliver. <laughs> By the third draft, it was Yes If, The Art of the Possible. That was the framework for our communication with Walt and the way he thought. He wanted to be told what he had to do to make his ideas workable. He did not want to listen to a litany of why an idea would not work. By the fourth and final draft, I made a switch. I opted for Walt's revolution by the numbers. The name would give credit to Walt's impact which was awesome, indeed a revolution. The book has 23 chapters and 340 pages. Its credo is that smart numbers work, roller coaster math, if you will, a title coined by Terry Van Gorder when he ran knots, will greatly enhance the chance for success for ventures of this kind. The premise, the math sharpens the picture because attractions tend to be predictable. Because fixed, measurable constraints control response of the audience. Things like vacation schedule, weather conditions, school calendar, market size, and family demography. The impact of story and theme and the force of the investment granted that subjectivity overwhelms the math on questions of concept quality and marketing effectiveness. The Disney story begins with Walt's great crapshoot at Disneyland, two years out of Stanford Business School, as Jay said, it was my great luck to write the location and feasibility study for Disneyland. Walt had been asking three of his very high-powered architect friends, Chuck Luckman, Welton Beckett, and Bill Pereira for help in evaluating and visualizing a new kind of amusement park. On a Sunday night at a party, he asked Chuck Luckman where he could find help in figuring out the park parameters, like how big, what form, what capacity, and most important, where to put it. Chuck told him, I had success with SRI, Stanford Research, on our new stadium in Honolulu. They put numbers together on the many new things 
we were trying to do. On the next Monday, I received a call from Nat Weinkoff, a movie industry character who was trying to help Walt figure out the nature of his park idea. What do you people do for a living? was his question. I expressed an eager willingness to come out and answer that question. After meeting that night with Walt and Nat, I drafted two proposals, one on site location and one on economic planning involving 12 weeks of work with a budget of $25,000, a big fee for 1963. On Tuesday, we had the two assignments and began to work. We would soon identify the best site and endorse the feasibility of the project. My life was to be changed, for Walt's revolution was a dynamic that would spin off in many directions. They are described in my book as seven waves of revolution. The first being the work of him, Walt himself. That's, that's truly a third of the book. In Anaheim, Florida, New York, and his many extracurricular projects. The second wave of the revolution was the regionalizing of a new generation of parks throughout the country. In the next 45 years, 62 parks with annual attendance of over one million, would be operating in the U.S. and Canada, most of them new. The book has chapters about many of the major players that we worked with. Wasserman and Dorskin at Universal, Malay and Shedd at SeaWorld, Gus Bush and John Roberts of Bush, Larry Cochran and Bill Moore of Six Flags, and 20 years of constant strategy planning for the Knotts family and their president, Terry Van Gorder, from 1978 to 1998 when they sold out to Cedar Point. There's also a sketched biography of a most interesting fellow, really deserving of his own book. My boss at SRI, who was hired to build Disneyland. IAPA Hall of Famer, C.V. Wood, Jr. Wood had a great influence on the new park and the organization. He built the organization. But he and Walt were destined to separate their paths for many reasons outlined in my book. Although he put me into business, Walt strongly approved of my working for other people. He did not consider it a conflict, but a benefit. He wanted to avoid insularity. He wanted to know what was going on. If he had said no dice, like lots of people would have, about working with others, after, the, after he set me up, my professional scope would have been constrained, indeed, limited. Instead, we took on thousands of jobs after he launched me with ERA, and I later transmuted to HPC. The third wave of the revolution concerned Walt's influence on World's Fairs. A decade after Walt opened at Disneyland, the World's Fair would emerge as the preferred proving ground for technical innovation and new concepts. It was a two-way street. From the Disney Revolution, fairs absorbed an improved approach to planning, project layout, crowd flow, and professional master planning. Before Disney, most fair planning 
was from the train wreck school of design. <laughs> it may have looked presentable as architecture and boulevards, but internally its capacities, crowd distribution, services, and economic planning were haphazard. After the revolution, fares gave back to the attraction business, spending money on improved exhibitry and pavilion design. Many theme park innovations were pioneered or, or, or advanced in this way. The 1962 Seattle Fair, cued by Disneyland's new monorail, installed the first genuine Vista delivery system of this kind in the history of fairs. The monorail still operates and connects Seattle Center to the CBD. Seattle, just 80 years after the Eiffel Tower was built, showed again that a fair tower could be a world-class attraction, improve the view, and survive after the event. The New York Fair funded development in audio animatronics with Lincoln, It's a Small World, and the Carousel of Progress. Breakthrough ride and theater systems were developed for Ford and GE. Montreal Expo developed CircleVision technology in its Canadian exhibit, and it was a blockbuster. IMAX technology was brought to fruition in the Osaka Fair in 1970. What a gift. Vancouver fathered Holovision and General Motors Spirit Lodge, which was later, as most of you have seen, replicated at Knott's. The revolution energized the world of World's Fairs with improved exhibit technology and pavilion design. For example, the New York Fair funded development in audio animatronics and Lincoln. It's the small world and the carousel of progress. Breakthrough rides, theater systems were developed for Ford and GE. Disney developed all of these. The fourth wave of the revolution, the movement overseas, was expressed by heavy investment in new and existing park properties abroad. If increased daytime per capita expenditures and attendance were to be the objectives of park operation, substantial investment money and new concepts would be required if they wanted to remain competitive. Older parks abroad could not continue to function as a nominal investment medium without the upgrade of theming and improved technology. Leading the wave, Disney in Tokyo developed more attendance than any park in history. In 2001, it hit 17.7 million, a world's record. Disneyland Paris suffered from initial bad publicity, but from day one, Disney in Paris more than doubled the attendance of Europe's largest regional park. It hit over 12 million, number four in the world. It seemed like everybody hated it except the customers. <laughs> These two parks set new attendance benchmarks abroad. A fifth wave of the revolution, taking off in the 80s, evolved out of the desire of the nonprofits, museums, zoos, aquariums, science centers, and the like, the nonprofits, to become more profit oriented. The idea was to entertain in order to educate. That was a premise that Waltz said many times, to make the project more interesting to a broader public, attract more attendance. Accent, mar accent marketing, increase per capita, and drive up earned income, the lifeblood of nonprofit operation. 
the math of visitation at the Smithsonian would resonate with the math at commercial parks. Nonprofits would learn to kick ass in the attendance generating game. The sixth wave of the revolution came to be identified by a buzzword, location-based entertainment and its acronym LBE. Several groups grabbed the LBE handoff and ran with it to save downtown and declining malls and to make money with indoor attractions. The period 1985 to the end of the 90s was a bull market period for the LBE movement with activities like themed restaurants and nightclubs. It was a field not without problems. Time magazine in its century ending century analysis summed it up by listing the current crop of themed restaurants as the number one worst idea of the century. <laughs> I think it was about the food. Recreation retail. The theory was that every seven years a new crop of kids will need their own Mickey Mouse shirts and gear. The field would depend on recycled audiences, but it would suffer from overexpansion. New indoor attractions, new generation arcades, virtual realities, simulators, places like Block Party, Star Trek in Las Vegas, Atlantis, Sega World, Metreon in San Francisco, GameWorks, Disney Quest, ESPN, Malibu Speed Zone, and others. Some survived and many did not. Multiplex cinemas became the centerpiece of entertainment center financing and thus exploded with growth. And new facilities and then imploded with overexpansion in many markets. The overexpanded theater chains went broke in large numbers. Major players and major companies. The quest for market share was no slam dunk. There were many other fields, uh, many other kinds of LBE projects. Some worked, but many did not. Much of the of this wave of the revolution crashed on the rocks, and many of us surfers experienced wipeout. The seventh wave of the revolution, and one of the strongest, was the use of attractions in the gaming industry, casinos in particular. Casinos became the dominant new R&D frontier for the attraction business replacing fairs. It was a forgiving environment. You could afford to do what was necessary to make the project work, or you could rip it out and start over. If you build a $150 million outdoor theme park in Las Vegas to be operated in a blazing sun, and it shriveled up in the heat. It was affordable to tear it down and try again. They had the money. The casinos had the money, exploding growth, ongoing operation, ongoing operation unlike fairs, one-time operations. And they could afford to try new things. Each entity had to join in the hunt to protect competitive position and market share. So those are the seven waves of Walt's revolution permeating an industry. In addition to these seven directions of spin-off, Walt's approach had a much wider impact 
than its application to the attraction business. His new kind of park became the bellwether, the role model for adding theme and story and smarter design to countless other entertainment enterprises outside of the attraction business, cutting across many fields of endeavor. Some examples, Opryland Hotel in Nashville, a huge 2,000 room establishment entwined in a vast botanical garden. It showed what theme could do to a hotel and was fully equivalent to anything of its kind in the country. The festival marketplace, Jim Rouse's revolutionary mix of retailing and restaurant touring in attractive urban settings, usually at a waterfront, showed how to bring the family up year-round. Rouse was a great believer in the Disney Revolution and wrote about it. Down. Bass Pro Sports Retailing in a Themed Environment started up in Springfield, Springfield, Missouri and drawing four million people a year in this small city, part of the Branson Extended Market. A classic example of what theme could do for retail. Industrial and commercial visitor centers, for example, the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, which never drew less than a million, spawned with Disney influence and design approach. WDI was consulted. Hershey's World of Chocolate, Intel at San Jose, showing new technologies to, cure, to curious visitors. The list goes on. The combined audience in this segment is in multi-millions. A new theme public library currently viewing wowing kids and adults in Cerritos, California, a new approach to a library. A revolutionary new style of presidential library about Abe Lincoln just opened in Springfield, Illinois. Powered with much more entertainment impact than existing presidential libraries. Train stations once, been, once again became themed mixed-use places for people to hang out, like those in Washington, D.C., Kansas City, St. Louis, and Paris, France. Halls of Fame got in the act in a big way with the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Disney was involved in that indirectly. The Jazz Hall of Fame in Kansas City, Elvis in Memphis, Rock and Roll in Cleveland, and many others. An entire city went to theming in the Strip of Las Vegas with awesome impact and over 40 million tourists a year, overnight tourists, not pass-throughs. Children's entertainment took the same route, the most significant example being Rene Aziz's city of the children in Mexico City, which carries its mix of vocation, vocational education and entertainment for kids to a remarkable new level of effectiveness. As one do, it is themed to the hilt and is being replicated elsewhere. The next part of the book contains four chapters on how to do strategic planning effectively on either a make or buy basis. In sequence, it defines the forms and workings of roller coaster math, the charrette process, and public-private approaches. It is something of a how-to-do-it manual. <coughs>
And when litigation occurs, the essential function of the expert witness is explained. The last part of the book contains three chapters on how to manage effectively the strategic planning process in companies large and small, and two chapters on what I learned. One of these, last two chapters, deals with the critical importance of CAPEX management. Sounds like processing chickens. <laughs> but it means capital expenditures, reinvestment, the life force of the attraction development process. The book quantifies this aspect of the attraction business and describes it as the art form it is. Walt elevated standards of design by example. The influence is pervasive. The marketplace will never be the same. It was a blast to be involved in the revolution. What built our relationship with Walton Roy was our reliance on a flexible, non-static, analytical approach. Following his lead, we called it Yes If Consulting. It was more useful than No Because. <laughs> yes If could contemplate and consider a partial or complete change in direction. Walt liked this language. Creative people thrive on yes, if, to help make the dream come true. It was the right context for planning in a company led by two very different but very close brothers, Walt and Roy. Both wanted the planning input, but for very different reasons. Walt wanted to define the creative opportunity and argue for the funds to do it. Roy wanted to control the level of risk. My role worked out fine. I was never in the middle. <laughs> the numbers were in the middle. And of the many projects since the first one in and on Anaheim. The most gratifying to me has been the evolution of CalArts. Why, did, why did, did Walt leave half of his estate, half of his wealth, to that school? He poured money into it. I believe that he thought that he could improve on the whole concept of art education, the creative process. I think he had a strong perception of the kind of art education he would like to have had himself. Fourteen times, beginning in 1969, we were funded to write concept papers on Walt's idea for the school. The mission, its purpose, structure, staffing, enrollment goal, and to undertake other tasks such as site evaluation, facility programming, and executive recruitment. We have a granddaughter there now studying dance. She graduates next year. One of our sons. One of our sons, now a successful sculptor, got his MFA there. And Walt had this idea that if he did a good job in that school, his graduates would make a living. The place that's changed the lives of my son and my granddaughter. And this year they gave me that PhD 
I presume it refers to the art of planning, because I have never done anything on an easel. I hope my book turns out to be a respected source book for those wanting to make a living in this business and those interested in Disney history and its specific impact on this industry and related industries. I worked for six decades in this field in a dynamic time before admitting to retirement last November. Maybe I called a halt because I too didn't want to be the last man on the Matterhorn. During my time in the chase, I was certainly hooked on the people in this field and their fascinating projects. They knew how to attract attendance. You people in Disneyana, with your driving interest, reflect this spirit in space. Thanks for inviting me. Any questions now? Anything you want to ask about life with Walt and Roy? And, the, and this field of endeavor? With certified answers, who was from someone who was there in 1953 when it all began. Last chance before I lose my memory. <laughs> was indeed, and uh, the story of my, of my experience uh, is, is written in my book. The first thing I did was go to the, the little farmhouse, and C.V. Wood and a bunch of his cronies were up there getting crocked on mint juleps. <laughs> it was hotter than hell. I went out into, I went out toward the castle. I got out on the bridge, and a little guy was jammed up against my chest. And I looked down at him, and he was cursing and raising, expressing his frustration about how things weren't working too well. And his glamorous date was stuck in asphalt. <laughs> and I said, good afternoon, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> Nothing worked. It was a challenge for Walt. It was amazing how fast he turned it around. I wanted to ask, what is your favorite Walt story? Well, I got hell from him four times. <laughs> I got, and, and, and somehow in life, I think we remember not so much when we got the little praise, but we remember when we get help. The first time was early in the park uh, after Disneyland opened. I kept telling him, you're losing, you're, you're wasting an opportunity to make money. You're leaving money on the table. There are tired men here with children, and they would like a cold beer. <laughs> You'll raise them for capital. The third time I said it, he said, don't tell me that again. And he said it very firmly. And there were three other times I got hell from him. <laughs> Could you talk about how uh, the numbers led you to the decision to be down here in the Orange County area as opposed to being closer to the studios? Because I understand the San Fernando Valley had... Well, when I, when I went out to uh, the, uh, the first... After I got the study, I went and had a meeting with Walt. And I said, if you've got to buy us, and he said, absolutely not. Uh, it's wide open. What? You tell me. And I said, no bias. You know, no, no predetermined interest. What about your golden oak that you own up north of the valley? Don't bother me with that, he said. I want your opinion of where this park will work the best. That was the, that was the clear instruction. And uh, basically the things we looked at 
to come at location were the since you couldn't be in the center of LA and you were trying to service a resident market of uh, five counties you had to move out so we studied freeway systems to see which way you could move out and there were three directions you could move out with reasonable completion times uh, then we looked at temperature gradients because it was 10 degrees hotter in the valley at San, San, San Fernando Valley and it was an equal amount hotter in uh, the Pomona Valley so we gave attention to the fact that we didn't want to bake our people in summertime weather and it's also colder in winter in those places um, then we looked at the direction of growth of the area we played with census data until we were bilious with our old Marchant computers um, and we found that the the center of the five counties was moving from around Alhambra uh, Atlantic Boulevard and, uh, and south of, uh, of Alhambra it was moving southwest rapidly because of the growth of Orange County um, and so we gave credit to that uh, we looked at smog patterns and uh, we found we didn't want to be on the foothills anywhere on the foothills which was also a hotter area um, and then we finally zeroed in on an amoeba of uh, location between the Orange County border and the Santa Ana city and five miles either side of the Santa Ana freeway that was our amoeba and then, and then we did detailed site location came up with ten sites in that area and he took number one so uh, Anaheim became the choice uh, if it hadn't been Anaheim it would probably have been the Willowick Country Club in Santa Ana which would not nearly have been as good I sure did we had at least a dozen studies on on, on the initial startup in Florida we did three site location studies uh, we also did an, a feasibility evaluation when he was trying to do a joint venture with with uh, MacArthur, the insurance man, and RCA Victor and NBC in North Palm Beach. Uh, MacArthur had 12,000 acres there. And, and, and it might have evolved because uh, Disneyland was tying in with RCA and NBC. And, uh, the, the, but RCA ran into cash flow problems and their chairman Burns uh, kind of said no not for me and and uh, Walt was busy in the New York Fair and said well let's look at it after the fair's over when we looked at it again we did a, a study that said the optimum location was not North Palm Beach the optimum location was around was around Orlando and we did the amoeba thing around Orlando and, and gave him a choice of four sites on the south side of Orlando. Uh, Two-part question for you. The first part, you talked about the amoeba shape that you uh, outlined for Walt for Orlando area. Yeah. How much of Walt Disney World took up that amoeba? How much what? How much of the Walt Disney World space we know now was inside of All of it. Amoeba? That part, there were 27,362 acres, I think. Uh, was all inside that air that amoeba. So it was a very large amoeba. Compared to it was you bet the, the, the amoeba uh, here in, in, in Anaheim was ten times twenty, uh, two hundred square miles. It was plenty of room to look for sites, and, and the, the amoeba down there was it was probably a little bit a little bit bigger, not a lot. The second question. didn't want to wake up someday and find out that nobody was interested in his park uh, 
and uh, his, his instinct was, I will put something new in regularly, frequently, if not every year, every other year, there will always be a reason to come back. Um, that transmuted into something like uh, 12 to 25 percent of your abdita uh, profit, your operating profit, uh, in a viable, uh, vigorous enterprise. Um, and we tracked that in all of the major parks. SeaWorld did it, Bush did it, Six Flags did it. They all uh, took a major portion of their available cash flow or abdita uh, and reinvested on because they had all caught on to the fact that this is the attraction world is show business. You can't offer the same damn product year after year without it declining. So I mean, that was Walt's first fundamental lesson on the vitality and, and importance of reinvestment. He was absolutely an original on that subject. Everybody else had been playing the milkman. Walt wanted, Walt wanted very much uh, to exercise a personal interest uh, and do what he'd done in the amusement park business. He took a tired old business and whipped it into shape by showing what could be done in the amusement park business. He also wanted to do that in a field he was quite interested in, uh, which was the winter-summer resort. The matter. Uh, the Matterhorn in, uh, in Switzerland was the, the one that cat fancied his imagination. He went there uh, two or three times and, and said, this is, a, this is the general idea. He hired Willie Scheffler, uh, who was a world-class uh, ski coach, ski athlete, Olympic hero, uh, the, the ultimate ski uh, hero. Uh, and he went looking for the perfect location to build uh, the ultimate ski resort that would be the model for the winter summer resort of the future. And he, we found the site and we were all set to go. Uh, it was Mineral King, halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles, two huge markets uh, in, a, in a, an unbelievable setting. We had. $40 million from Pat Brown to improve the highway. Everything was ready to go when he died. If he hadn't died, I'm pretty sure it would have been I would bet my last dollar. If he'd lived two more years, it would have been built. Um, and that was our biggest disappointment. Not just me, but Willie Scheffler, Bob Hicks, and the others who worked on it. We all knew that he was onto something. He could have made a resort of the likes of which there was no, no other place in the world, and he had the site for it, and it, they blew it. Uh, that was a big disappointment. The reason they, they said they didn't want to do it in the corporation is that they had CalArts to build, they had Florida built to build, and Walt was dead, and how much can you do? And I understand that, but it happened, and it's a big disappointment. About what? About St. Louis uh, being considered for a park. St. Louis. Oh, I could. I uh, I wrote the study. <laughs> a little after, as a matter of fact, it was one of the last studies I wrote in ERA because we got to be, we got up to a hundred people, and you can't manage a hundred people and, and write studies. So, I but I wrote a study on Walt's uh, interest in St. Louis, which was nurtured by the town fathers of St. Louis, who wanted to, had, they were building a big stadium, uh, and they had, a, they had a, a primal force in Gus Bush, and Gus Bush wanted to do something with uh, the momentum that Walt was showing he could demonstrate. Uh, so, 
they had a downtown block at the foot of the the arch, and uh, it was a super block. And we did what I think was the first major study on an indoor park. Um, and it was you know, four stories high, it was all indoors, and uh, it had uh, lots of things going for it, namely the backing of the city, the backing of the bushes, and uh, everybody's uh, uh, well, by now, Wall had been burnt on, on peripheral intrusion in Disneyland. He wanted lots of ground. Uh, that's another time I got hell in from Wall. <laughs> Our second site in Florida was 10,000 acres. Uh, and, I when, and there was a question whether the 27,000 acres was going to be available. And, I turned to Walt and I said, kind of like, what the hell, 10,000 acres is a lot of land. You can build a lot of parks on 10,000 acres. What's wrong with 10,000 acres? And he more or less gave me a definitive closure to my commentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, After Walt was dead, uh, Card gave us a study uh, in ERA to say what what what's after what's after uh, uh, Anaheim and the Florida. We had already served him on Florida, and uh, so we went looking abroad, and we looked at all the markets abroad. And we gave them three, three market standards in sequence. Uh, one was Tokyo, uh, two was France, and three was London. Um, and we wrote that report, and uh, since they did the first two, it was more or less held water. One more question. What do you do to keep your mind so agile? For example, do you play chess? What's that? What do you do to keep your mind young and sharp? Well, I love numbers. Um, I've been around a lot of creative people. I found out early on that the design world flounders in pursuit of numbers. And, and that I found a niche I could be useful <laughs> uh, because I could do numbers work better than the average architect. I could do numbers work better than damn near every architect I ever met. Uh, and they, I won them over. Uh, in the first place, they they said we can do that. Welton Beckett had uh, a, a five-man econ division, and one day he fought, he called up and said. Hey, I've had enough of this. He said, it's a conflict of interest when we do our own numbers. How would you like to have five people and all our work? <laughs> so I hired his five people. We got all our work. Still get all our work at ERA. <laughs> On behalf of the NFC, we'd like to give you this token of our appreciation of you sharing your incredible wisdom with us. That's your gift for coming today. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I would like to thank you all for listening to the windowtothemagic.com podcast as we enjoy our third year of bringing you the best audio experiences from throughout the wonderful world of Disney. We appreciate your feedback, so be sure to email or call us soon. Email us at podcast at windowtothemagic.com. Call us at 206-984-9886, or you can join our discussion forums at wttmforums.com. If you like what you're hearing, 
please visit windowtothemagic.com and make a donation using the PayPal link on the podcast page of our site. Be sure to tune in next week when we will once again be coming to you live from the Disneyland Resort in Anaheim, California. This has been Window to the Magic Podcast number 111. And we'll see you next time.